Here we are, continuing in our study in Galatians, and I think everybody would agree, everyone that's been uh, going through this study with us, that the Lord's really speaking to us as a, as a congregation, and of course, you know, as individual believers, the Lord's really speaking to us about grace, and that's the, the theme you know, it's, it's really the theme of the entire Bible, but specifically the theme of the New Testament. And uh, it's certainly the theme of Galatians as well. So uh, once again, today, we're looking at that theme of grace and we're looking at uh, Paul's uh, exhortation to stand firm in that grace, which he refers to here as uh, the freedom or the liberty. So so Paul has argued that we are free from slavery to the law. Now, now, of course, Jesus came to set us free from sin, and we're going to be talking about that as we, as we move forward in the epistle. But Paul's uh, emphasis up until this point has been the, the freedom from, from the law or the, or the freedom from a legalistic uh, perspective or an attempt to approach God through a legal system. So he, he's been arguing that we're free from that. And what that really comes down to is that we are free from that ever-present burden that accompanies the idea that acceptance with God is based on our performance. That, that's what we've been set free from, that idea that, that God accepts us if we perform well. And that's true in regard to salvation. We're not accepted by God because of our performance. We're accepted by God because of the performance of another, right? Jesus Christ. He, he's the one who kept the law, and we are accepted by God through our faith in him. But the same thing in principle applies to us even as um, now as believers, as we seek to to follow the Lord and to live for him, um, our, our acceptance with him is still based upon grace. It's not based upon our performance. In other words, it's not that, you know, if you have a good week spiritually, God really loves you and he really accepts you and you can really expect his blessing. But if you have a, you know, kind of a bad week, then forget it. You know, don't, don't be expecting any blessing from God. If we think that way, it just, it's an indicator that we're still thinking in terms of this um, uh, performance-based acceptance. So we stand in the freedom of full acceptance with God through our faith in Christ alone. That's the, that's the gospel. That's the teaching of the New Testament. And so now Paul, having stated that, having spent the last uh, two chapters of Galatians establishing that, truth, he now says, stand firm in this. Stand fast. Hold on to this. Don't, don't be moved away from this. Don't let anybody uh, push you in, in the opposite direction of this. And then he adds, and do not be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. Do not be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. You know, it's, it's been a battle all throughout the history of the church. It's been a battle uh, to not become entangled in 
uh, bondage to, to legalism, to, to religious ritual, to man-made rules and things like that. It's been a battle all throughout the church. It was, it was the battle, to a large degree, it was the battle that Jesus fought when he came. You know, when you look at the gospel records, as you will know, anybody that's read the gospels, you, you realize that the, the greatest opposition to Jesus was not from uh, the pagans. It wasn't even really from the Romans the greatest opposition to Jesus was from the Jews and particularly the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders. That's where the the fierce opposition to Jesus came from. And what were they doing? They were resisting the gospel. They were resisting this idea of the grace of God. And so Jesus uh, had to fight against that, his entire ministry. And so likewise, we have to guard ourselves against the attempts of others to bring us into bondage to man-made rules. It's a battle that we fight over and over and over again in each and every generation in the church. But let me just refresh your memory in regard to the battle that Jesus fought and just a, just a few examples. Remember the, the time when Jesus was with his disciples and they were they were walking through a grain field and his disciples, as they were walking along and as they were you know, talking together, a few of the disciples reached out, plucked off part of the grain and began to, to chew on it. And this was a cause for great concern among the Pharisees. They accused uh, the disciples of being lawbreakers at this point. Now, I don't know if they jumped out from behind the... Uh, you know, the bushes or what, but I mean, you know, they, they found out about this, this great infraction of the law and they were quick to point out that uh, these followers of Jesus, they were, they were breaking the law as far as they were concerned. Now, the law that they considered them to be breaking was the Sabbath law. And now here's the Sabbath law as stated in the scripture. Um, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy Uh, six days you shall work, on the seventh day you shall do no work. That's the Sabbath law. There's various other uh, ways that it's worded, but essentially that's what it is. But these guys, they took that simple law, you shall do no work on the Sabbath day, and they developed what what became a, a written code that filled 39 volumes on what that actually meant. So at the time of Jesus, it wasn't codified, but it was all in their tradition. So in their tradition, because the law had said, uh, you shall not work on the Sabbath, of course, uh, harvesting your crops on the Sabbath would would qualify as working. Uh, But because these guys snapped a piece of grain as they were walking through the grain field, they accused them of harvesting and thus working and thus breaking God's Sabbath day law. So that's one example. Then here's another one. Uh, maybe you remember the occasion where uh, the disciples and Jesus, they sat down to eat and they were accused by the religious police 
of um, eating with defiled, unclean hands. And it was because they had not washed their hands. But not only was it that they had not washed their hands, they had not washed them in the prescribed manner. That was the real problem. You see, there was no law that said you couldn't eat. There was no uh, biblical law that said you couldn't eat without washing your hands. But these guys had developed this tradition. And in the tradition, the law said that you had to, to wash before you eat, but you had to wash in a very specific way. You actually had to hold your hands in a very specific way. You had to have them at a certain angle and you had to use a certain uh, type of a, of a pitcher of water. And, and the water had to be poured in a very precise way over your hands in order for your hands to be ceremonially cleansed. And so because they didn't go through this procedure, they then accused them and, and condemned them of, of violating the law. But, but the one that I think kind of just really takes the cake is uh, the occasion in the synagogue where there was a woman in the synagogue and she had been bound for 18 years with this infirmity that kept her, her bent over so she couldn't stand up right. And she was in this condition for 18 years. So she comes into the synagogue, Jesus knows her plight and he heals her. And it the synagogue, of course, it happened to be on the Sabbath day. So he heals her and there's all this rejoicing that's taking place. And understandably, I mean, this is wonderful. This woman is freed from this burden. It's, it's a great miracle of God. And as the people are rejoicing in this, suddenly the attendant of the synagogue stands up and says, wait a second, this is all wrong. Stop the rejoicing. We don't care about this miracle today. What we really care about is that the law has been broken because there are six days in which a man can work. And so come on one of those days to be healed, but don't come on the Sabbath to be healed. Now, this is crazy. He said this in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus, you know what he did? He said, you hypocrite. Jesus called him out. He said, you hypocrite, if, if you had one of your animals, if, if your donkey fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you pull the donkey out? Of course you would. How much more valuable is a person? And if you're going to take care of an animal on the Sabbath day, shouldn't you take care to help a person on the Sabbath? But this is the kind of thing that Jesus had to fight against. This is the kind of thing that Paul was battling against with the with the, the false teachers that had come to Galatia. They, they were doing the same kinds of things to the Galatians. So let's just kind of paint the picture. They're the Galatians. They're uh, former pagans. They're idol worshipers. They've come to faith in Jesus. They're following the Lord now. They're loving God. They're enjoying life. It's all good. God's working among them. And the, the Judaizers show up, these, these false teachers. Paul's gone now. The Judaizers show up and they look around and they see all that joy and they say, oh, oh, this is wrong. No, this, this isn't good because, uh, wait, what, what about the law? How many of you are circumcised here? Well, we're Gentiles. We're, we're not circumcised. Oh, well, that's it right there. 
You know, you're not circumcised. You're not, you're not really right with God. And the saddest part of it all is the Galatians bought it. They bought right into it. But this is the kind of stuff that Paul is, is fighting against here. And so he's, he's exhorting them in these first two verses. He's exhorting them, don't let this happen to you. He's telling them, stand firm in the liberty. Stand firm. Literally, it stand, the, the, uh, the wording here is literally, stand, stand firm in the freedom with which Christ has set you free. And do not be entangled again in this yoke of bondage. And if, if a person is going to stay out of this kind of bondage, we're going to have to resist it. We're going to have to push back on it. We're going to have to say, no, that's not right. And I've said this before as we've been studying through this. You know, we have to fight for grace. It's, it's a battle for grace because the enemy and the proud human heart is always gravitating toward a, a works righteousness, which is a self-righteousness, which uh, rejects the, the righteousness that, that God provides through Christ. So we have to fight against this. Every generation has to fight against this because the Pharisees and their descendants are alive and well in the church today. See, these things don't change. It just goes from, from generation to generation throughout the ages. You have the same kinds of battles. And just like that, that joy-killing hypocrite guy in the synagogue that uh, just couldn't stand to see people happy and joyful and rejoicing in what God was doing and had to throw a, you know, a wet blanket on it. There's, there are people that will do that today as well. And this is a long time ago, but I think back to some of the stories uh, I've heard from the early days of you know, when God did a, an amazing work in the region here and this church kind of came into existence in many ways. I mean, it existed before, but you know, many of the young people in the culture were coming in and they were coming out of that background as, as you know, the, the counterculture, the hippies and all of that. And God was doing a wonderful work. And, and many people were rejoicing. They were so thankful. But you know, there were those people walking around with their notepad, taking note on all the things that were wrong. And why well, you know, what are you so excited about? I mean, look at how, uh, look at how these people look. Uh, you know, look at their hair, or look at their clothes, or look at the, you know, the fact that they're not wearing shoes, or, you know, these kinds of things. So here's this wonderful thing God is doing that everybody should be rejoicing in, but you would find some Pharisees here and there that just you know, they couldn't see the blessing of what God was doing. All they could see was that rules were being broken. Traditions were being violated. We don't do things like that around here. So that's 40 years ago plus. So, but today we, we've got the same thing. We have the same thing happening today. God is working in certain places and he's working in ways that are maybe uh, un familiar to or, or ways that people aren't comfortable with. So rather than looking beyond the things that they're uncomfortable with that aren't really biblical things so much, they're, they're certainly not essential things, uh, and, and just being able to rejoice and say, you know, thank God for what he's doing, all they can do is focus in on the, the negative part of it. You know, it, rather than... Praise God that these young people are coming to faith, that they're coming out of sin, that they're coming out of darkness, that they're now following Jesus. And, 
uh, you know, but, but no, but they're, they're not doing it this way or they're doing these things and, and we don't approve of that. And, and you still have that, that spirit very strong today. So this is a thing Paul is talking about here. He says, resist it, essentially. Don't be entangled in this. You, you've got to stand firm in the freedom with which Christ has made you free. You have to fight for freedom. Now, having said that, in the next few verses, verses two through four, Paul is going to once again emphasize the fact that, that this, is a, this is an either or proposition. It is either grace or it is law. It cannot be both. And the, the Judaizers, of course, they were kind enough to allow for faith in Christ, but faith in Christ alone wasn't sufficient. And Paul is showing here in these next few verses that Christ and the law are mutually exclusive in regard to how it is that we are saved. And so look what he says in verse two. He says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Let me just stop for one second there, circumcised. As John was reading the, the passage and I was looking at circumcised on the screen, I thought, you know, there's no doubt some people here going, what in the world are we talking about? What is circumcised? What has that got to do with anything? Well, circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. Uh, it, it, was, it was the indicator that his descendants were, were part of the covenant that God made with him. And cir circumcision is a symbolic rite. And it is symbolic of the, the old life, the dead uh, useless, sinful life being cut away so that, you know, real life can, can come forth. A baptism is, is sort of the New Testament version of circumcision. Among the Jews, it was circumcision. Among believers, it's, it's baptism. So when you're baptized, what you're saying is that my old life, my old sinful life is gone, buried Dead and buried, that's, that's, that's what baptism is about. And now, as you come up from the water, you're coming up with a, the newness of life. So, for the Jews, circumcision was that. That was the indicator that you were part of the covenant. And so, this is the thing that the Judaizers are imposing on the Galatians. Now, remember, the Galatians aren't Jews, they're Gentiles. And so there was no such right, for the most part, among the Gentiles. And of course, when Paul leads them to Christ, he knows that there's no need to circumcise them because the circumcision has to do with the old covenant. So he says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you. And he emphasizes his, his own person here for a reason. And the reason is this. Remember, Paul was an apostle at the present time, but before he was an apostle, remember, Paul was not just a Jew, Paul was a Pharisee. He was part of that group of guys that opposed Jesus when Jesus was here. He was part of that group. So he was one of these uh, Jews who was more strict, more devout, more devoted, more committed than anybody else was. There was, you know, in, in the time of Jesus, 
in Israel, there were approximately only 600 Pharisees. So this is a very elite group of people. Paul was part of that group. And he was a scholar. He was a legal scholar in regard to uh, the law of God. So if, my point is this. If anybody knew about circumcision, Paul knew about it. So he said, listen, forget what these guys are saying to you. I, Paul, am telling you. You want to talk about circumcision? I'll tell you about circumcision. If you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And then verse four, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So these are very stern words that Paul uses here. And this goes back to what he said earlier about his doubt as to whether they had really embraced the gospel. He believed that they did. He hoped that they did. But because of their behavior, he's wondering, did they really embrace the gospel? So he's telling them here very clearly that you can't have both uh, the gospel and the law. You can't mix these two together. John Stott, in his commentary on Galatians, he said this, and I think it explains it well. He said, to seek to be justified by law is to fall from grace, quoting Paul in verse 4. He says, you cannot have it both ways. It is impossible to receive Christ thereby acknowledging that you cannot save yourself and then receive circumcision, thereby claiming you can. You have got to choose between a religion of law and a religion of grace, between Christ and circumcision. You cannot add circumcision or anything else for that matter to Christ as necessary to salvation because Christ is sufficient for salvation in himself. If you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. Salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That's what Paul is saying. You can't blend the two together. And so again, Paul is calling them to stand firm in the freedom with which Christ has made them free, but he's giving them a strong exhortation here, telling them that if you try to mix the law in with this, you nullify grace. You nullify grace, you put yourself under obligation to the entire law. It's, it's not just, if, if you're going to go the, the root of the law, then remember, you're going to have to keep the entire law. You're going to have to keep the whole thing. Circumcision is just where it starts. But you're going to have to keep the whole thing. And then he says, if you're approaching it this way, you've actually fallen from grace. Or you've put yourself outside of the realm of grace. Now, in their case, again, Paul's questioning the validity of their conversion. But at the same time, he's hopeful that they are genuine believers, so he's going to speak to them uh, like they are. But, but he's, he's giving them some strong uh, exhortation here to show them just how serious uh, the issue is to try to blend these two things. Uh, but for us, even though we might be clear on the justification issue. In other words, we're, we're clear that we're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith in Jesus. We don't believe that it's faith in Jesus plus adding you know, something to it for the most part. I would assume that we all agree on that. We understand that. Um, but we also have to recognize that that 
that same truth and principle applies to how we move forward in our Christian lives after we have been saved. You see, the mistaken idea is that I get saved through grace, but then I go on in my Christian life by adding the law. Not so. The law brings us to Christ. The law is finished at that point. What happens now that we've come to Christ? The Spirit takes over our lives. And that's what Paul is going to go on, and that's what he's going to say in the remaining verses here. So in verse 5, Paul really, in this one little verse here, he describes the, the, the difference between those who are trusting solely in Christ for salvation versus those who are uh, trying to add the component of the law. He's making a contrast. So look what he says in verse five. He says, for we through the spirit. So this is the first key, the spirit. You see, we through the spirit. The law leads us to Christ for justification. And when we come to faith in Christ and are justified, we're declared righteous. We become Christians. We become children of God. Like I said, at that point, we don't go back under the law to try to move forward. No, the spirit takes over. So it's like the law delivers us to Jesus and Jesus, in a sense, delivers us over to the spirit. And it's the spirit that does that work in us. It's the spirit that does that, that transformational thing in us. It's the spirit that, that causes us to progress uh, into the likeness of Christ. You see, we're, we're never, as believers, we never go back under that, that performance-based acceptance and we have to know that because we gravitate toward that. We, we drift toward that. Unintentionally, even, at times. We're just so, in, it, this is so ingrained in our nature that even as believers, we, we are oftentimes reverting back to that mentality. And we're either, that, that results in one of two things. We're either proud of our accomplishments or we're in despair at our failures. We're either thinking that we're God's gift to everybody in the church, or we're thinking we're the most miserable losers of all time, and it's highly doubtful that we're ever really going to, in the end, be saved. Those are kind of the two places that you go under the law. You either go into a prideful state, or you go into a state of despair. And so it's not through the addition of the law, it's through the Spirit. So we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So through the Spirit, we eagerly wait. We eagerly wait. Now, the, the, the Judaizers, the false teachers, you know what they're saying to the Galatians? They're saying, no, you can't wait. And the idea behind wait is included in that is resting. You can't rest for a minute. You've got to keep working. You've got to keep going. You've got all of these laws now that you've got to bring yourself into subjection to. So you're going to strive and you're going to keep working hard and you're going to live with this constant anxiety as to whether you're really performing well enough. But 
the gospel says, no, we wait. We eagerly wait. So this is what we're doing through the spirit. We're trusting that spirit's work in our life and we're resting, waiting for the completion of what God has started in our lives. You see, and this is part of the freedom that Paul's talking about. It's the freedom to just rest in the Lord, to just know that, you know, the, it, it's already been taken care of. Jesus took care of it. I was talking to a friend yesterday who was telling me about uh, having had the privilege of leading his mother to Christ in her older age. And, um, but he said that she would occasionally come back to him and she would ask him, she would say, now, are you sure that this is all that I need to do? It just seems so simple. And you know, this is oftentimes what people say in response to the gospel. Have you ever heard people, I, I've actually had conversations like this where people will tell you like, man, it's so hard to be a Christian. It's so hard to please God. And you know, why even bother trying? And they'll go on and on about how hard it is. And then you say, well, look, no, listen, here's the gospel. And you tell them the gospel. They go, oh, that's way too easy. <laughs> so it's like, no, it can't be that. You know, on the one hand, they think it's too hard and that's because they have the wrong idea. But then when you explain to them what the gospel is, they say, oh, that's too easy. Well, it is that simple. Jesus did it. He's the one who, who paid it. We, we are resting in what Jesus did. We're resting in that finished work of Christ. And he says that we are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? The hope of righteousness. Well, righteousness is a reference to the, the completion of the work that God has started in us. So righteousness could also be understood as, if we want to look at it as heaven, we want to look at it as glorification. It's basically pointing to the time when we're all delivered once and forever from the presence of sin and the power of sin and all that. And, and we're, we're with the Lord and it, it's all done. It's pointing to that. So we eagerly wait, he says, for the hope of righteousness. Now, the misunderstanding sometimes can come about because of the word hope. Because the way we understand hope today is not the way hope has always been understood. And the way we understand hope today is the exact opposite of what the Greek word means. So we understand hope as something we believe or long for or desire that there is an element of uncertainty to, right? That's how we understand hope. When we talk about the future, we say, well, I hope this is going to happen. But even by saying that in the way we understand the word hope, we acknowledge that there is an element of uncertainty to it. The crazy thing is that the Greek word that's used here means the exact opposite of that. So really what we should understand this verse to say is that we through the spirit eagerly wait for the certainty of righteousness. That's, this is not something that, well, you know, I, I hope it's gonna happen. No, this is something that is absolutely certain. It is going to take place. Because salvation, although there's three um, tenses to it, it's one thing. 
And if, and if you have one of the tenses, if you have the past tense saved, then you're guaranteed that you have the, the future tense as well. Now, in the New Testament, the salvation is presented with these three tenses. Sometimes the, the scripture says that you are saved. And right when you hear saved, okay, that's something that's already done. It's, it's a past event. But then there are a few passages where it, it actually talks about that we're being saved presently. And then there are passages that talk about we will be saved in the future. Now, some people who are not correctly dividing God's word, they have mistakenly thought that, well, salvation is a process. See, because it says right here that we're being saved. So, so we're being saved, meaning we're, we're in a process of being saved right now. So we're, we're not already saved. And then, because there's the future tense, that, well, you know, we're going to be saved in the future, but we're not saved now. No, the references to the present tense and the future tense do not nullify the past tense. When the Bible says that we are saved, it includes all three. It includes the past, the present, and the future. We're saved from the guilt of sin. We're saved or being saved from the power of sin, and we will be saved in the future from the presence of sin. But if you're saved, all three are included. And Paul wants us to know that. And so the hope of righteousness is the hope of that ultimate destination that we're going to. We're going to that place where we are not only declared to be righteous, but we are actually righteous because the, the presence of sin is no longer a part of our being. So Paul says that we, um, all of this is ours by faith. So once again, he comes back to the faith versus the works. This is ours by faith. This isn't ours by working. And if you think about it, you cannot have any certainty of righteousness if it's based on works, right? Because you can never be sure that your works are sufficient. And you can never have a guarantee that you will maintain, even if you thought right now, my works are, uh, my works are sufficient right this moment. Well, then if you get to a moment where you think my works are sufficient, you should also pray, Lord, let me die right now. Because this is the only... <laughs> you know, because right at this moment, I've, I've, I've got the guarantee. But you know what? An hour from now, I don't have that guarantee. I don't know what's going to happen an hour from now. So you see, there's never assurance, absolute assurance or absolute certainty as long as salvation is based upon your work. But if salvation is based upon your faith in Jesus, who did the work then that's where the certainty comes in. That's what Paul is saying. That, that's, who, that's who we are. He's speaking to them, um, hopefully. You know, no, we are this. We're, we're not that. But then he says this in verse six, the final thing. He says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Now, Paul was, Paul was a radical. But, you know, Paul was, um, you know, Paul was the guy that was going to say things that even 
the other apostles would sometimes cringe at what Paul would say. They'd be like, oh, did he have to say that? Because remember now, the other apostles, they're all Jewish. All the apostles are Jewish, right? But the distinction between Paul and the others is, is he's, the, he's like the, the Jewish teacher. They're not. They're, they're like the, the subjects. They're the students. You know, they know, they know Judaism from having it imposed on them. Paul was the one who was imposing it. So he sees it in a way that they don't see it. So in places where they might see it as somewhat well, innocent, that's not really harmful. We can hang on to this. It's okay. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not. Paul understands that, you know, with, with this whole idea of legalism, you can't give it an inch because if you give it an inch, it'll take a mile. Paul, Paul gets that. So he makes these radical statements. He says, circumcision avails nothing. Do you know what the Jews would have done? Well, this is the kind of thing where they would have picked up stones and tried to kill him if he was in their vicinity, having said something like this, because this was so radically offensive for him to say this. But that's what he says. He says, it's nothing. Circumcision is nothing. In other words, he's saying these things do not matter one iota. This is not what it's about. This is not what the gospel was intended to accomplish, having Gentiles get circumcised. What the gospel is intended to accomplish is faith working itself out through love. That's what God's looking for. And so we in our own application of these things, we have to realize that the petty rules that some set up by which they judge others and justify themselves, these rules mean nothing. They mean something to them, obviously, but in the bigger picture, as far as God is concerned, they mean absolutely nothing. They are completely irrelevant and should be ignored just as Jesus ignored the tradition of the elders. That's the position that we are to take in regard to legalism. We're not, to, we're not to give it place. We're not to put up with it. We're not to tolerate it. We're not to allow it to infiltrate our ranks because again, as Paul understood, it will take everything over. So, so we have to keep fighting against it. We have to keep pushing back. And listen, we have to fight against it in our own lives because we all have that same tendency to go there. And not, not in regard to, um, you know, issues of salvation, but just more in regard to practices among believers. It's so easy for us to get into these legalistic mindsets and to pass uh, judgment and to be critical uh, of, of certain other believers this happens all the time, and we have to resist this. We have to, we have to um, guard our own hearts because a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and if we let it into just a few hearts, it starts to permeate the whole, uh, the whole amount. And so you, you have that today. You have entire congregations or sometimes even, even movements where they, they look with disdain upon other uh, churches or other people in the body of Christ simply because they do things differently than we think they should be done. And this is a problem that we have to face and we have to root out from our own hearts that kind of legalism. And, you know, I can 
I, I, can, I can sense legalism a mile away. You know how? Because I used to be a legalist. <laughs> so I know what it looks like. I know exactly what it looks like. I know what it sounds like. I've been there. I've done that. I can, I can recognize it. And I think there's, you know, all of us to some degree at probably some time in our Christian's life, Christian life, we go through these kinds of things. That's why the epistles are written. That's why the instruction is given. But you know, we have to grow beyond it. We have to grow out of it. But I have held positions in the past where according to my view of things, you know, it's just like God could not work in this kind of a situation. But you know what the Lord has done? He's, he's continued to show me, you know, Brian, I can do whatever I want and I'm not gonna consult you as to whether you think I should do it. I remember a couple of incidents. I, I, I have a really dear friend, a, a precious friend, a wonderful brother in Christ who's a pastor of a church. And, you know, we're, I, I just really love this guy. And um, so we had met each other and we were doing ministry together for some time before I ever knew anything about his background, anything about his story. So one day in the course of talking, we got onto the subject of our testimony, you know, how we came to Christ. And when he told me his, his story, I, I was thinking in my mind as he was telling me the story, man, you know, I wouldn't have allowed for your story to be like that before, you know. No, God, God couldn't do that. God couldn't save you that way. You know, as he's telling me a story about how the Lord met him, it was in a way that I didn't believe that God would meet people. No, he, he wouldn't meet a person like that. And whenever I heard about those kinds of things, I would immediately dismiss them as, well, that's, you know, just some crazy thing. That's certainly not God working. But now I've got the dilemma of having this person in front of me who is undoubtedly a Christian, who is undoubtedly a servant of God, who I have been laboring alongside of and seeing the love and the, the, the beauty of Christ in his life. And now when he's telling me his story, I'm like, wait a second. Wow. This, this didn't fit with my theological perspective. And that's, those are some of the ways that God has, has broken some of my uh, legalistic ideas down. I might have told this story before, but bear with me real quickly. I remember being at a meeting. I was uh, living in London at the time, and I went to see Ravi Zacharias, who was speaking at, a, at an event. And it, you know, he was speaking in a church and had been invited by people who were of a sort of a, you know, hyper charismatic persuasion. And so we went and we're sitting there and, you know, they have a, a time of singing and all before uh, Ravi got up to speak. And in England, they have this thing where they, um, they like to worship with banners and flags and they, they get like a banner or they get a flag on a pole uh, and they, they like to go around the churches and they wave the flags and they sing and they dance and all of this stuff, you know. And so I'm sitting there and this is happening. And I am just like, man, this is just so, just so, just, no, no, this is not good. This is just weird. And why are they doing that with these flags and this is ridiculous. And, you know, this is my mind. This is all happening in my mind as I'm sitting there observing all of this. And, uh, you know, sure enough, as God will often do, I'm, I, as I'm sitting there going through all this mentally, the Lord just speaks to me and says, so what's your problem? <laughs> well, Lord, my problem is I don't really like this. 
And the Lord spoke back to me and said, you know, I'm okay with it. And you know what I had to say, right? I had to say, sorry, Lord. Okay, <laughs> you're okay with it. Uh, they're worshiping you. That's, they're, they're not doing this for me. And, but, but it was one of those times where it, it's like, you know, Brian, do not confuse your preference with my, uh, you know, the things that I uh, will do or, or allow. And, and sometimes that's really what it comes down to. We just, it, you know, because we have a certain preference, we just think that, well, of course, God goes with our preference, right? He, you know, I, my preference is universal. Everybody should prefer what I think should be the case. But God does not do that because he's God. And so we have to just be so careful. Cheryl and I were having a conversation the other day because she was talking to me about the, um, the situation in the synagogue there where Jesus healed that woman that was bent over. And she was saying, you know, it reminds me of the kind of situation where you have, you know, you have these churches where you have God doing a, a, a really wonderful thing where people are coming to Christ out of, you know, all kinds of sin and misery and, and all of that stuff. But then because some of their behavior is not in sync with what we think should be the behavior, there's, there's a tendency to kind of write it all off. And we were, we were talking about a, a particular church and there, there's a church that is very well known for its production of worship music. There's some, you know, several of the songs that we sing have come out of that church. They're really amazing, great songs, glorifying the Lord. But, you know, honestly, they do some things that I think, I personally think are weird. It's like, you know, when I hear that, I'm like, oh, that's weird. There's something, you know, I just don't agree with that. And the temptation is to just, just be critical of the whole thing. But love says, you know, we see God at work in, in these areas. And, and this area over here, we don't necessarily think God's working, but you know, maybe it's people just kind of getting carried away, emotional or whatever. But the tendency naturally, and sometimes among us as Christians, is to just write the whole thing off because of certain areas where we disagree. Peter said that love covers a multitude of sins. And if love can cover a multitude of sins, it certainly ought to be able to cover uh, our preferences as well. And we ought to be able to look and realize that, you know, even though I don't fancy that or I don't really feel comfortable with that kind of thing, you know, that's just not where I'm at. In, to, to recognize that, you know, God, God can work in the midst of these things. Because Paul said at the end of the day, what God is aiming for in his work in our lives is love, faith working through love. That's the real indicator. That's the thing that's going to, as Jesus himself would say, all people are going to know you are my disciples by your love for one another, by your love for one another, love amongst the people of God. And so this is the thing that we are to focus on. Faith working through love. Circumcision, uncircumcision, these external things, these outward things, Paul says they're nothing. They're nothing. Love is the key. Love is the thing. That's what God is wanting to see from our lives. 
It's his love. And love is the greatest force, isn't it? Paul, remember in writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, the great faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. And, and it's love that's going to win the day. And it's love that's going to soften the heart. And it's love that's going to um, cause the, the person that normally wouldn't even think to move in the direction of the church. It's love that's going to bring them in. So for our own lives personally and for our lives together collectively as a, a congregation of people, what we want is we want love to be the atmosphere that we live in. We want people to be able to, to sense that when they walk through the doors that there's something different here. There's something different than anything that's going on out there in the world. There's something different than, than is what is going on, unfortunately, in, in churches where there's, you know, they've lost sight of the end of the commandment being love from a pure heart, and they think the end of the commandment is to come up with more commandments. But that we would be a place where the presence of the Lord would manifest through that love. And as that is the case, as that is the uh, aroma of our gatherings, that will be where people are impacted. And that, of course, will be God's desired goal for us because this is what it is. It's not circumcision. It's not uncircumcision. It's not laws, legalism, rules. It's faith working through love. So Lord, help us to stand firm in the freedom with which you have set us free. And Lord, help us not to be entangled in a yoke of bondage, which is so easy for us at times. Help us, Lord, to stand fast in this liberty and to remember, Lord, that we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the certainty of righteousness by faith. Lord, that we are resting in you and what you did on the cross and what your Spirit is doing in our hearts and what you're going to do ultimately in bringing us to that place of total freedom from sin and into that glorified state. And Lord, that's all happening through faith as we keep trusting Jesus, as we keep just falling back into his arms and allowing him to do in us what he desires to do. So Lord, may that be our experience and may your love overflow our lives, and our gatherings, we pray. Amen.